Amen. How are we this morning? Good. <laughs> he really is that good, y'all. He really is that good. Now, this morning, if you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. You can actually just put your little tab, your placeholder in Mark. We're going to be there for ever, quite a while. We're, uh, we're going to be there for quite a while because uh, this is week three and we're on verse 12. So, you know, 2020, we should be wrapping up the book. I'm just playing. As you turn to Mark chapter 1, I'm going to pray for us this morning and then we'll get after it. Father, you're the greatest of all time. You never change, you never waver, you never fail, you never back down. You are infinitely better than anything we could experience on this earth. In you, we sing it as a declaration, God, not as a hope, but as a declaration of truth that we've been made more than conquerors. Not because we're good, not because we bring anything to the table, God, not because we're sufficient, but because you are good, God, because you spread the table and you are sufficient. God, we ask you this morning in faith that you would allow our eyes to see in the scriptures what we can't see on our own, that our ears would hear this morning from the scriptures what we can't hear on our own, and that our hearts, God, would receive from the scripture what we can't receive on our own. God, we need you. God, we could use a lot of words and make it real flowery and pretty, but God, just stripping it all away, we, we need you. We are absolutely desperate for you this morning. Whether we realize it or not, we're desperate for you. So God, as we prepare for, um, for our hearts to receive this word, God, I just pray that you would, you would do in our hearts what we can't do for ourselves. God, Lord, that you would convict us, challenge us, pour your hope and grace and encouragement over us, and we will give you all the praise and all the glory. And everybody together said, amen. If you weren't here last week, I want to catch you up for just a minute. We talked last week about the baptism of Jesus. And we made a few points that are pretty central to our faith and to our belief system. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus had never sinned. Jesus did not need to repent. That was not why he went and was baptized. He was giving a, a sign of obedience and a sign of submission to the Father. Always, Also a sign of practice for us. He actually said in the Great Commission that we should go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So we should go, we should make disciples, and then we should baptize people. So Jesus was in his baptism showing his humility. Remember we talked about, I told you how oftentimes where when we think about baptism, we think about, you know, pretty baptistries and music playing and, you know, Uncle Earl that we hadn't seen in three years standing over in the corner. He came to see you get baptized, you know. And that's what we think about. We think about pretty you know, clean water, a nice environment. But the, where Jesus was baptized, I told you I got the opportunity to visit Israel, and I was actually baptized in the Jordan, and, uh, and it was pretty ratchet. There's no other word I can really explain it with. It was pretty ratchet. It was dirty. It was nasty. There were goats and donkeys across the river, and it smelled like goats and donkeys. The water smelled like goats and donkeys. So it was not pretty. I remember we said last week it was another symbol. It was another sign that that Christ Jesus was willing to get down into the messiness and the nastiness of humanity. He was willing, he, he loved creation so much, he was so obedient to his Father that he was willing to get down in the mess with us. Remember we said we, we don't serve a Savior who is just looking for perfect people, but we serve a Savior who is willing to get in our mess with us and redeem us and give us life. That's the kind of Savior we serve this morning. 
We also made another mention, that, another note that I want to mention before we move into the text for today. But we talked about the significance of, of Nazareth. Remember we said that you can't find Nazareth in the Old Testament anywhere. You can't find it in the Jewish Talmud. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he never reports on Nazareth. Nazareth was an obscure backwater town. It's kind of like a Tata, remember? He said, like a Tata or Omega, one of those, you know, Oscilla, you know, Omega, or whatever, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like one of those small little towns out of the way. That's what it was. Like if you were to ask somebody in Atlanta, hey, could you give me directions to Oscilla? They'd have no idea what you're talking about, probably. That's kind of what Nazareth was. And we, we, we focused in on that last week. He said, why, why, did, why did God have to put Nazareth? Why was Mark so central in Nazareth? Because it was a reminder to all of us that God was made famous by making something out of nothing. Remember the New Testament, the man that said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And God was the voice that said yes and Amen. So hear me this morning, before we even move into today's text, I want you to think, if you're in Nazareth right now in your life, if you're kind of in an obscure place, a spiritual nowhere, if you will, maybe in a spiritual backwater town, and you're just kind of treading water, thinking, man, is God going to do anything good for my life? Is he going to use me for his glory? Is he going to redeem my past? The scripture says yes and amen. And he used Nazareth to remind us that he was made famous by taking nothing and turning it into something. So no matter where you're at, no matter what you're walking through, he can turn it into something. So, that was last week. Let's move through the text for this week. Verse 12 and 13, Mark chapter 1. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, speaking about Jesus. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. Right, I, I want to stop right here because it's interesting. Mark, I said it to you before, but reading the book of Mark, studying the book of Mark is like, it, it's not really studying a marathon, it's kind of studying a sprint. Like, Mark was not about flowery details. Uh, the book of Matthew, when he talks about this temptation scene that we're talking about, Jesus being in the wilderness, Matthew talk, had 11 verses. Luke had 13 verses. Mark just kind of gives it two verses and is like, let's, let's get to the cross. And then his whole book, he uses the word immediately like 41 times or something. He uses the word immediately more than Matthew and Luke put together. Mark is just rushing to the cross and rushing to Calvary. But I don't want to together rush through what he had to say. So I want you to key in on something with me. Verse 12. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And you say, well, okay, TJ, I read that. I get that. You've already said it three times. It's getting a little weird. Why do you keep saying it? Because it wasn't the Satan that took him to the wilderness. And I think this is interesting, I, I, not only interesting, I think this is significant for our lives because sometimes I think we give the devil, the devil, Satan, demonic spiritual warfare in our culture around us, and even in our peer groups at times, I think we give it too much credit when we walk in the wilderness sometimes. Sometimes the Spirit of God leads, uh, leads us into the wilderness so that we might be pruned and made perfect to look like and reflect Christ. You say, well, TJ, I don't really like that. That kind of rubs me wrong. Well... Take it up with Mark. 
Verse 12, the Spirit drove him out. And Mark, Mark uses, I, I said Mark is kind of, he's kind of a roughneck. He uses kind of rough language. The, every other text you'll see that said the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Mark's like, no, 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 no. The Spirit drove him out. And it wasn't that Jesus was disobedient or sinful. It was that Jesus was, again, hear this, submitting to the will of the Father through the power of the Spirit. He's submitting again. He's taken to a place of suffering for the glory of the Father and as a first step of defeating the dominion of darkness. This wilderness experience had to take place so that he could submit. He was showing, putting his humanity on display. He's submitting to the Father. Wherever you go, God, wherever you tell me to go, wherever you tell me to go, I'm going to go. And I, I said this earlier, that you serve a Savior who doesn't run. You don't, you don't serve a Savior who abandons you. You serve a Savior who, in the face of the wilderness, in the face of adversity, ran towards it. Do you hear me this morning? You, you don't serve a weak, fearful Jesus. And a lot of times when we see paintings of Jesus, he's this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, kind of dainty guy, right? And, and like Jesus, Jesus was willing to walk into the darkness of humanity, into a wilderness where he was about to be assaulted by Satan, where he was about to be tempted beyond anything he'd experienced. And instead of running, instead of him saying, no, I don't, I don't think I'll do this, God, I think I'll just kind of let the cup pass from me, he ran headlong into the wilderness. Hear this, you serve a Savior, a God loves you, who in the face of adversity he never ran but always submitted to the Father. He went into the wilderness so that you and I might be freed from the wilderness. And he took the long journey to the cross so that you and I would have the Holy Spirit power to carry our cross and live eternally with him. He didn't run from adversity and he didn't run from the cross. He ran to it. And that's the attitude and even the spirit in the book of Mark running to the cross. Before we move on, I want you to hear that one more time. That's the Jesus you serve. Not a Jesus who says, man, your sin and your shame, your struggle, this is a little too much for me. I'm going to go this way. No, Jesus runs right into the midst of our wilderness, right into the midst of our brokenness, right into the midst of Calvary. Throws up his arms and says, not my will, but your will. Is nailed to a cross, brutalized for, our, for the glory of the Father and for our eternal good. That's our Jesus this morning. Now, but I want to make a few things pretty clear out of this. When you start having that conversation, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. You, you start having this conversation. So did God author, did, did, God, did God make him suffer? Like, did God author the suffering in Jesus' life? Is God the one doing the tempting here? Those are questions, those are actually deep, pretty deep theological and doctrinal questions that we should answer, so I want to answer that for you. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So did God author the suffering in the life of Jesus, or did God, by the power of his Spirit, allow Jesus to walk into temptation and attack? And to that I would say, yes. For the glory of God and for the good of mankind, God allowed Jesus Christ to walk into suffering. So hear me when I say this. He led him there. He wasn't the one tempting him. God was not the one assaulting Jesus with temptation, but God led him to the wilderness for the glory of God and for the good of all mankind. You say, well, T.J., I don't really like that. It hits me a little weird too sometimes. But I want to show you this. God doesn't tempt, but God does allow suffering and attack. 
When you think about the life of Job, you think about Job having this audience with God, which kind of creeps me out a little bit, but Job has an audience with God, and he says, he says, God, if you would just remove your hedge of protection from Job, I could get this dude to curse you. And God, and I'm just paraphrasing, this is T.J. Malton, 2017 translation, God's just kind of like, go for it. God removes his hedge of protection, and Job loses his property, Job loses his family, Job loses his health, even his wife, supposed to be his greatest encourager, looks at him and says, curse God and die, bro. The bro was my part. It, curse God and die. God allowed the suffering in Job's life. And Scripture says that he added back to Job more than he had in the beginning for the glory of God, for the renown of God. God allowed Job to walk through incredible suffering. I want you to see another place in Scripture. You say, TJ, I still, I'm not really liking this. Well, let's look at Luke 22, 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you so that he might sift you as wheat. I would love for the Scripture to stop right there, just personally, and for Jesus to look at Peter and say, but you know what, Peter? I told Satan he couldn't do that. Peter, I, I told Satan that he couldn't make you suffer. Peter, I told Satan that he was not allowed to wound you and to hurt you. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, until you deny three times that you know me. God is so much bigger and so much higher and so much more beautiful than us. And there are times in our lives where he allows us for the glory of his name and for, the, for our eternal good to suffer. You say, well, teacher, I don't like that. I don't either. But the Bible says this, that all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. See, we can't see it sometimes even this side of heaven, but even our suffering, even our darkness, even our wilderness experience is somehow working in us this eternal weight of glory and working for our good even when we can't see it. And while we're talking about suffering, I want to give you three truths about suffering and temptation. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot these down. Please jot these down. Number one, suffering is a symptom of the fall. It is absolutely unavoidable. Every single one of us in this room will suffer. Uh, it would be easy to Joel Osteen you this morning and be like, guys, every day is going to be a Friday if you just pick Jesus and everything's going to be really, really happy and and, and it, th listen, that's easy preaching, and it would make you feel really, really good for about 45 minutes until you go outside and your window's been broken, somebody stole your wallet, or there's a flat tire, or you get the diagnosis and it's not what you wanted. And then that kind of preaching falls flat. Because the reality is, is that we are all going to walk through suffering because Adam blew it in the garden. Suffering is a symptom of the fall that we will experience, that all humanity will experience until Jesus comes and reigns eternally and sets all things right. Romans 5.12, I don't want to just give you my opinion, here's the Bible. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam, Adam messed it up for us. And, and just to give you this before we move on, some of you may say, well, no, that was Eve's fault. 
Was Eve took the fruit. That was on Eve. Well, in the context of Scripture, if you read the Bible, Adam was standing with her, and rather than being a spiritual leader in his household, he was a passive man that allowed his wife to step outside of the bounds of Christ. He could have stepped up. He could have been grace-led her. Fellas, I'll make this one little note real quick before we move on. But you have a call from God to lead. You don't get an option if you're going to be a believer. You're the spiritual head of your household, or supposed to be. So hear me when I say this in grace and love this morning. Step up. If you don't fight for your wife, the discipleship of your wife, if you don't fight for the discipleship of your children, if you don't fight for the discipleship of your peer group, the world is definitely not going to. Just because Adam is kind of like at the beginning of our lineage, you don't have to act like him. You don't have to stand there passively, fellas. You can stand up for the glory of God and the grace of the gospel in your home, in your peer groups. And I say that to you young men. Listen, it's easy just to go with the flow. It's easy to leave with destruction. It's easily it's easy to follow your buddies. It's easy to follow instant gratification and, and have an Instagram filtered lifestyle. That stuff's so easy. But pray that God, and, and hear me, young guys, pray that God would from a young age raise you to be leaders, raise you to graciously carry the gospel. All right. Suffering is a symptom of the fall. We're all going to fall. That wasn't in my notes. All that was free, by the way. I love you guys. Point number two, suffering is a symptom of the fall. Point number two, suffering is a way that we identify with Christ. Suffering is a way that we identify with Christ. Oftentimes, we live in a culture, and just like I said earlier, we live and have lived for a long time under preaching that says suffering, God doesn't want us to suffer, God would never author suffer, God, or, or God would never allow us to suffer, God... God's just, it's only peaches and roses if you pick Jesus. That's kind of the word that we hear in church a lot. But the reality is, is if you look at the context of Scripture, if you look at the Bible, it's a far different view of Christianity because when those dudes suffered, they left rejoicing. See, we think if we're spiritually attacked or if we're ridiculed for the name of Christ that we've done something wrong or God must not love us. But when you look at the disciples, when they were beat and ridiculed and cast to the ground, when they walked through suffering, they left rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer for his namesake. What if God raised up a church in this generation that celebrated their suffering because God trusted them with the battle? 1 Peter 4, 1 through 12. Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. I want to give you that one more time. It's going to come. If you haven't been through a trial, you're going to go through a trial. Many of you sitting in here might have just come through a trial. Don't be surprised. When it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for my namesake, you are blessed because the spirit and the glory of God rest upon you when you suffer, when you're ridiculed, when you are cast aside, you are identifying with Christ Jesus. You get to look like him. You get to reflect him to the world. I want to make a note real quick, too. Because there's some of you this morning that carry deep wounds. Your hearts have been broken. 
Your childhood may have been squashed. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse. I, I, I don't know all of your stories, but I know in this room what I believe and what I know that there are some of you who are walking through suffering you think, TJ, I don't know how God can use this for His glory. But I can tell you this, listen, your suffering will lead you to one of two places this morning. It will lead you down a path of bitterness and resentment against those who have wounded you and ultimately against God, or it will lead you to, down the path of surrender and identifying with Christ Jesus. See, when we walk through suffering sometimes in this life, we think, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of build myself up. I'm going to kind of push people away. I'm going to kind of build these walls around me, make sure that I, that I don't get hurt anymore. Anybody ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand, but just kind of wink at me or something. All right. I see you. All of us on some level, there's little areas of our lives where I'm not going there. I'm not going to get hurt again. Not, I've been wounded. I've been, I'm going to build these walls. I'm going to stack these bricks up. And what we don't realize is that in our bitterness and our resentment against those in our past or even against God for allowing us to go through it, we have walled ourselves in. And we think that we're walling ourselves in and protecting our hearts, but really we're becoming prisoners. Allowing the resentment, the bitterness, and the wounds, and the pains of the past to, to ensnare us and to hold us and to allow us never to walk into freedom. I want you to hear me say this this morning. You can be free. You can be free. And listen, guys. I... I I, I want to be personal for just a second. My childhood was a train wreck. All right? The only other word other than train wreck that I could attach to it is ratchet. It was terrible. My parents split when I was five years old, and they split again when I was ten, got remarried, split again. And then there's this, between my, my parents, there's like seven marriages. Listen, they're both... They love Christ and they're following Christ today and it's part of their testimony, but there's like seven or eight marriages. I don't, I don't know if it was seven or eight, but there's like seven or eight marriages and step-parents and other families in and out of my life and there were things that happened at a young age. I'm just like, why in the world, God, would you allow these things to happen? And, and I want you to hear me say it. Not, I, don't, you know, I usually don't share that, but I, I say it today because I want you to see that what... what the enemy means for bad, the things that you think will destroy you, the scars and wounds that you think there's no way that I'm ever going to see daylight, God will take and use those things to make you not only a trophy, but a tool of righteousness for his glory. You can be free this morning. You don't have to be bound by your past. You don't have to be defined by your suffering. You don't have to be ensnared by your sin and your shame any longer. You can be free. You can be free. Because suffering and temptation ultimately does not last forever. We all suffer. We're all wounded. But we've all been graced by the power of the Holy Spirit to decide what we do with those wounds and with that suffering. Do we allow it to ensnare us and for us to build a prison around our hearts or do we submit those things to Christ knowing that one day we may not even understand it on this side of heaven but one day we will see in full view His glory and the good that could come from it. One more note on suffering before I, I move on. It will not last forever. Psalm 50, Psalm 30, verse 10. 
His anger is for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The shame doesn't last forever. The guilt doesn't have to weigh forever. The pain and the brokenness does not have to win today. Weeping may come for a night, and it's okay to grieve wounds. It's okay to grieve losses, but joy will come in the morning. I'm telling you, joy will come in the morning. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affliction is working in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Yes, even your wounds, even your suffering, even your missteps and your own sin, God, by His grace, can redeem and use for His glory. Let's move on together. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The 40 days was symbolic. Israel had to walk in the wilderness for 40 years because of their absolute defiance and disobedience towards God. Jesus mirrored that in the wilderness, but what's beautiful about that, the Children of Israel were bound to the wilderness because of their disobedience. Jesus went willingly into the wilderness so that we might be free. This was Jesus' affirmation and preparation for earthly ministry. There was no disobedience in him. I want to remind you of that. Further affirmation of his obedience and willingness to serve the Father. I love what one theologian said. More likely the reference to wild animals here betrays and portrays and wants us to understand how barren and danger the place, dangerous the place really was, heightening the fierceness of Jesus' temptation experience. The perspective also fits better with Mark's statement that the angels were ministering to Jesus. Such service was necessary because of the desolation and peril of the place. This morning, one of the most interesting pictures, and as we start to think about wrapping up, one of the most interesting pictures in these two verses, I know that there's not a huge picture painted. You know, other books, we only have 11 to 13 verses, and here in Mark, we only have two. But what I want you to see going on in the wilderness today that's important is this cosmic battle between Christ and Satan. There's this battle going on this temptation, and what's interesting here in the original language, it actually gives note that, that when it says that he was tempted by Satan, it wasn't just a spirit of oppression, it was actually the physical, like Satan was in the garden speaking to battering Jesus, assaulting Jesus. And I want you to know this morning, and I want you to key in on this with me, that that kind of battle takes place today. See, in the garden, there were, there, there, were, there were two sides to a war. There were two sides to a battle. And from the wilderness experience, there was a, two voices that have maintained throughout redemptive history and, and, and history as a whole and, and will remain until Christ throws Satan into the pit forevermore one day. There's a battle going on this morning for your soul. There's a battle going on this morning for your joy. 
And I want to show you this. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, there is a battle going on this morning. Spiritual warfare going on in our lives and around us. And hear me when I say this this morning. We have an absolutely real and ad active adversary. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. We have a real adversary this morning. The voice of the enemy is in our culture. It is all around us, leading us away from Christ, leading us to instant gratification, leading us to pride and to materialism, leading us away from the glory of God. And it will not be silenced eternally until Christ returns. So this morning, be aware that you have to be sober-minded. You have to be vigilant. The enemy wants to kill your joy. He wants to destroy you. He wants to keep you wrapped up in the sin and shame of your past. But listen to this this morning. Not only do we have a real and active adversary, we have an absolutely real, all-powerful, ever-present advocate. His name's Jesus Christ the Righteous. In the midst of this cosmic spiritual warfare, this battle that's going on, you have an advocate. Listen to this, 1 John 2.1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but any of you do sin, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. I want to finish that verse. I intentionally left it, only half of it with you from John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I, am, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Two roads this morning. Two voices. Would you surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit this morning and allow Christ to redeem even the suffering in your life? And I, I want to say this, and I want to say it intentionally. It's okay to have wounds. I know we live in a generation, and we even go to churches that are filled with people that, that we, I mean, even ourselves, I, mean, I look in the mirror, I'm this guy sometimes. We put on a smile, we put on a face, and you know, sometimes they make us put on a tie and make us look like everything's perfect. Everything's good. Hear me when I say this this morning. It's okay to have wounds. It's okay to have suffered pain, hurt, grief, and loss. It's okay to still be dealing with it. Ever since the fall, every human that's ever lived has been a little bit screwed up because of what Adam's done. Hear me when I say this this morning. It's okay. Because you have an advocate. You have a King Jesus who wants to heal your wounds, who wants to bind you up, who wants to give you a, a, a spirit of rejoicing instead of a spirit of heaviness. He wants to give you this morning beauty instead of ashes. But listen... We have to submit it to Him. Sometimes it feels good to hang on to that resentment and that bitterness and those wounds and, and make a defense, but we have to submit it to Him. He was wounded for our sake. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. He was rejected so that you and I could be received from, by the Father. This morning, let go of the wounds. 
Make that first step in repentance. Let go, let go of the bitterness. Let go of the anger. Let go of the hate. Ask Christ to help you. You can't do it. This isn't a self-help talk this morning. Just look in the mirror and say seven times, you will not be bitter today. It ain't going to happen. But today, today can be the first day that you acknowledge that you have that wound and you ask Christ to begin to heal you. Today can be the day that you realize that you've been in a wilderness and you need the Holy Spirit to minister to you. So we're going to have a time of response this morning and we're going to have a song of worship. And this is, this is my challenge this morning to you. Take this time. I love for you to sing. I love to hear God's people sing. But I really want you to take this time to respond. If you don't know Christ Jesus as Savior this morning, take this time to, to ask Him to do in your heart what you can't do for yourself. Key in on me. Check this out real quick. Hang with me for just another second. If you don't know Christ Jesus as Savior, if He does not have the Lordship in your life, respond to Him. If you feel Him doing something in your heart, your heart's beating out of your chest, you're that person that's like, TJ, you're talking to me. I know you're talking to me. How'd you know what I did this past week? I need to ask Jesus to be my Savior. If you're that person, it's okay to respond. It's okay to cry out for a Savior. If you're the other person this morning, you're the believer, and your life has had scars and wounds, and maybe today can be the first day, or maybe today's just one of hundreds of days that you say, Jesus, I need you to help me. Jesus, I realize that there's suffering. I realize that there's pain. I realize that there's heartache. But I really need to feel your Holy Spirit beginning to heal me. If that's you this morning, I just say be brave. Have that conversation. Lift your heart. Lift your hands. Surrender to the Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for making a way when there was no way. Thank you for running towards the wilderness. Rushing towards the cross. So that we could be received and redeemed and loved. Thank you for being a God who regardless of our sin or our past or our failures or our wounds or our suffering, you have the power and ability to redeem those things and use them for your glory and our good, God. Thank you for being that kind of God. We just love you a lot. And we want to respond in faith today. In Jesus' name, amen.